welcome to What's Up Ely, a podcast that gives listeners a slice of life here at the end of the road in Ely, Minnesota. My name is Lacey, and I invite you to pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and join me in conversations with my neighbors as we discuss what's up in our special little town. Don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy our content, go ahead and leave a five-star review, as well as a comment to help prospective listeners understand what you like about the show. Your reviews and comments help us get the word out about the What's Up Ely podcast and about Ely itself. The What's Up Ely podcast is sponsored by the Ely Tourism Bureau. You can find more compelling Ely content on Facebook and Instagram at visitelymn or check out ely.org. This episode, we have the pleasure of meeting Larry and Sue Smith, who will tell us all about the Ely Kiwanis Club blueberry pie sales that take place as part of the Ely Chamber of Commerce Blueberry Art Festival. We'll also learn about the role of blueberries in the Ojibwe culture, thanks to the insights of our guest, Ryan Bajan, a tribally endorsed Ojibwe language and culture instructor. Lastly, we'll hear from photographer Chris Ellerbrook about the joys of blueberry picking, as well as an exciting Ely Tourism Bureau media project. Let's get to it, shall we? Larry and Sue Smith have lived in Ely since 2012. Both are retired ministers in the Lutheran Church in the ELCA Synod. They're active members in the Ely Kiwanis Club, which supports many local organizations for kids in the Ely area. Hello, Sue and Larry. Hi. Hey. It's so nice to have you here with us. You were here to discuss the Ely Kiwanis Club and your blueberry pie program during the Blueberry Art Festival. But before you do, I'm wondering if you'll start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I guess I'll start. Please. I uh, grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and lived there until I was 18 and I went to college. Then I went to college in Michigan and Nebraska, and I met Larry when I was in Michigan. Um, We have lived many places in the United States, and sometime in during our time, because Larry was ordained as a pastor before I was, Mm -hmm. and sometime during that time, I received the call to be a pastor also, which, like many people, I ignored for two and a half years. But (laughs) once you get that call, you can't ignore it. And eventually I went to seminary. And uh, Larry and I have had the opportunity to serve together at one congregation. Uh Uh, And the thing that I found most interesting when we were at that congregation was that people would say, the two of you are so different in personality. And I said, well, you know, that's good. Mm -hmm. Because if we were the same, it would probably not work as well as it does. But um, we started, this might be something that you want to say, but I'll say it instead. We started uh, coming up to Ely on vacation in 1987, when we lived in the Twin Cities. And we came to Ely for vacation from 1987 until we built our home in 2010. Wow. And we loved Ely so much, and that's why we decided to retire to Ely. Mm-hmm. And I love living in, in Ely, and the one thing I love the most is you can park in one spot in town, and you can get all of your errands done and then go back to your car. <laughs> I just think that is fantastic because I've lived most of my life in larger cities and suburban areas where you have to do a lot of driving. So, but I've 
this is the first time I've ever lived in a small town. Mm-hmm. And I like it. So charming. I had a we have a couple interns starting for the summer at my job. And today we did a walking tour of the town. And certainly there's more to see than we can see in the little walking tour that we did. But like you said, I mean, in this four block radius up and down two streets, you could get everything you would need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's it's just fantastic. And the one, the one thing I noticed about the people in Ely, and someone described it to me like this, we might disagree with each other and even fight over issues. But if somebody needs help, or the community is raising money for something, this community just comes together. And I am just amazed at the amount of money the people in this community give to help other people. Mm -hmm. It's very heartwarming. It is. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you for sharing that little bit about yourself. I'm sure we'll circle back to some Mm. of that. (laughs) What about you, Larry? We have two kids, uh, Matthew and Catherine, and Matthew lives in Burnsville, Twin Cities suburb. Uh, Catherine lives in Orlando, Florida. Ooh. Yeah, so we spend time here in Ely and time in Florida mm-hmm. as we are able. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all grown now and have their own lives, but it's always fun to, to be together and do things together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they came up here with us over those years. Uh, they still come back and join us around Labor Day every year for about a week. And uh, we just do things at the lake and, and things like that. So it's, it's part of their, their uh, lives as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, my uh, son Matthew recently bought a new home. And it, uh, for years he's been taking a, um, uh, you know, an outfitter, uh, get him into the boundary waters and happens to be spirit of the wilderness. And he got to know the owner pretty well and uh, somehow heard about their house in the Twin Cities up for sale. And so he was the one who bought their house <laughs> and now I lives love in that. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, word of knowing people, your network, your it, personal network can exactly. definitely help solve problems for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Matthew also, when he was here a couple of years ago, he and I were in Mealy's. Mm-hmm. And the owner of Mealy's came up to him and said, hey, Matt, what are you doing here? And I I looked at Matthew and I said, how do you know him? Oh, we always go to the same concert in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our son-in-law was up here and somebody else from town said, Ed, what are you doing here? And he knows him from some concert series that he goes to. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. it is a small world. Oh, I have maintained that for a very long time. I mean, I've only lived here for four and a half years, but I noticed very early on that I was more likely to run into, you know, acquaintances from past iterations of my life Mm. here, Mm. even than I was in St. Paul, just Mm. knowing that there's so many people coming in and out of the area for mostly reasons of tourism, but lots of, Mm. lots of reasons. Um, Yeah. The people you can bump into here, mm-hmm. the number of people with an Ely connection is very profound. It is. Yeah. So, Larry, I think that you should mention how many times you've gone into the Boundary Water. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Well, that was what initially attracted me to uh, to this town. And uh, we, uh, well, one time, uh, not too long ago, I was at the Forest Service picking up a permit. And uh, the person there said, um, do, you, uh, do you need to see the video? And I said, well, and she said, how many times have you been coming up here and seen this, the video? I said, 
And I said, I just counted and it's been about 50 times. <laughs> so no, I don't need to see the video. <laughs> I'm all set. Thank you very much. What an accomplishment yeah. to be able to tally that and say over the course of the year, you've yeah. done something so special as going to the wilderness 50 yeah. times. Well, being a pastor in a congregation, I always brought kids up, mm -hmm. you know, groups of kids. I also brought uh, men from the congregation. I served in Egan mm -hmm. up as well. I come up by myself. I go with, you know, friends. It was just a magnet that just kept us coming back. And even when we lived in New York, uh, mm -hmm. we just kept coming back to, to Ely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So We were just talking, my co-worker with our new interns were orienting them to the community and we were just talking about boomerangs people who come here for a period of time leave and then feel compelled mm -hmm. to come back mm -hmm. yeah yeah another fun story is our daughter who lives in orlando was walking their dogs and she met another gentleman and they were new to the neighborhood so they introduced she introduced herself to him and um, that she was from Minnesota. And he said that he and his wife had recently bought some land in northern Minnesota, and they were going to build a cabin on a lake. And she said, oh, where? And he said, you know, it's a small community that you've probably never heard of. And she said, where? And he said, Ely. <laughs> and, and she said, my parents live in Ely. And so we found out where he lives. And so once, you know, June hits, we're going to go to his house and knock on the door and say, hey, we're Kathy's parents. I love <laughs> Isn't that stuff great? like that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a special a place. World. Yeah. Small world, and this is a special place in it for sure. Um, I'm curious, when y'all were first coming up here in 87 and beyond, um, I take it you were paddling mm -hmm. in the wilderness? Yes, yes. Um, what other kinds of recreating do you like to do or mm -hmm. what other things do you do for fun? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I took up uh, bike riding. I used to ride uh, quite a bit. Now I'm up here and I, I do the like touring bicycle mm -hmm. riding. So whenever I get a chance, I get on my bike uh, from our house and I, you know, ride along the trails. And mm -hmm. I'm so happy to see that we're getting this connection all the way to Grand Rapids, <laughs> Minnesota. And so that's kind of, I look forward to doing that. And I rode for Habitat for Humanity and raised money for that organization for a while when they weren't able to, you know, get together mm -hmm. and just did an honor system. And you could ride so much, so many miles per day and just record it. And when you get up to 500, then you've done the Habitat 500. And you know, with sponsors and everything. I can't remember what I earned personally, but it's... Uh, um, about, I think you earned about 1800 Yeah, $1,800. Mm -hmm. So I like biking. Yeah. Yeah. And I can do it here and do it in Florida too. So yeah, good exercise. How lovely. Yeah. And I enjoy the Ely Golf Course. It's really kind of special. Mm -hmm. Very hilly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a, it's, it's so beautiful to t take good good care of it yeah have you gone out yet this season just use the driving range but okay i'm looking forward to getting out to play yeah. some games i don't i do not play golf but last year he took me with him when he went to play and on every hole he would explain the distance why he was using the particular club he was using and that is probably one of the most beautiful golf courses i've seen mm -hmm. it is really pretty mm-hmm you have to know I didn't start golfing till I was retired. Well, actually, three years ago, uh -huh. right? 
Right. Wow. And I swore I'd never take up that game. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's too, too uh, crazy, I guess. But when COVID was around, mm-hmm. yeah, there wasn't much you could do. Mm-hmm. So, Time to start a new hobby. Time, time to take some lessons and, mm-hmm. yeah. and try to get better at golf every day, I guess. It's a tough game. It is a tough game. My my parents moved to Ely last year, and I would say conversely, mm-hmm. I don't think that my dad would have moved to Ely if there weren't a golf course here. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> I, I don't know that he would choose to live in a place without one. So yeah. Yeah. I'm very glad for him and for me that we have a golf course. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I have not yet experienced it, but I haven't been golfing since I was a child. Uh-huh. And I do. I was in golf. it for the golf carts. Yeah. <laughs> I have a driver's license now, so I don't need to bother with that. No disrespect, of course, to the sport. Um, So tell us, how did you get involved with the Kiwanis Club? We were invited by a member of Grace Lutheran Church who was involved with Kiwanis. We were invited to come to Kiwanis meeting and experience it. And uh, when we found out what their mission was, it was just kind of a natural for us because it it raises money to support children in the community where you live. So I, I'm not sure we would have gone if we had not been invited. Mm. But uh, I, I just love the organization. Mm-hmm. I love being involved in, in the one here. And it's because it's so specific and you can see the organizations that it supports mm-hmm. and the good that it does in this community. I mean, I, I still cannot believe how much money we give to organizations in this town every year. It's it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the power of a personal invitation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because yes. I had the pleasure of sitting, joining a Kiwanis meeting myself recently, and it just so happened to be that your district representative, right? I forget his title. Governor. New, district yeah. governor. Newly yeah. elected. Was there, and so there was sort of a, a round robin of people talking about, you know, how did they get involved? And just the amount of people whose story had to do with a personal invitation mm-hmm. and the amount of people whose story had to do with just enjoying being a part of the group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, the sheer experience of participating is pleasurable. Right. But their entrance was through a very custom invitation through mm-hmm. a known mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that for me... Being a member of Qantas and and the topic we'll talk about a little bit later, the Blueberry Festival, to me it is just sheer fun. It's work, but it is fun. And I just get so much joy being part of that. Mm-hmm. And the meetings are once a month? Once a month, the second... Wednesday. The second Wednesday of the month at 8 o'clock at the gel. Mm-hmm. We have breakfast together. We have the meeting. We get to chat with one another. And, and uh, you know, most of our planning happens around either we really start in May talking about the Blueberry Festival. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of carries through through the Harvest Moon Festival. And then we happily get to give money to people. Yeah. Then and, you get to distribute what you've earned. Right. Mm-hmm. And if there's new organizations in town like I met at the Blueberry Festival last year, I met Sunshine, mm-hmm. who was starting, to, you know, his work. And I said, you know, you should apply to Kiwanis for money for your organization. And he did. And, you know, we gave him uh, money. 
Yeah. And so if you if we come across an organization that isn't part of it, we just encourage them apply for a grant. Mm-hmm. See if you can get it. And usually the grants once people are given a certain amount of money each year, it just continues without them having to continue asking. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll circle back a little bit or backtrack a little bit. Sunshine Gardner is the um, owner and I don't know what he would say his title is, but, you know, key t- primary educator in an organization called the Ely Adventure School. And so it's a nature-based um, preschool and child care program mm-hmm. for children in the Ely area. And Sunshine gave a Tuesday group presentation about the sort of pedagogy of a nature-based education. And it was profoundly interesting. And I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, like, of course, people up here in the wilderness, like, would love to have their children experience the wilderness more. But no, there's a remarkable, a profound amount of research that has gone into the benefit of that kind of approach to educating children. So I loved loved getting a little bit of insight to Sunshine's um, educational and professional background that was the foundation for the Ely Adventure School. So good for y'all for helping support that financially. Right. And when I talked to him, he was just beginning, um, we need more child care in this community, which is a huge need in Ely. And he was going to concentrate on that in addition to what he was, his his original plan. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, good for you. Or as the Aussies would say, good on you, you know, <laughs> um, for doing that. Because, you know, as I've talked to other people, I've heard about other people that they're also starting to concentrate on getting child care in this community. Mm-hmm. Because people, uh, they can't work if they have children and they need good child care because you're not going to work and just hand your child off to anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have to be able to afford it. There's like a chicken and an egg problem, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Like I always say, I say this a lot, so many chickens, so many eggs. Mm-hmm. We have all of these positions that are open, you know, so many institutions seeking to hire employees, but there's not necessarily enough housing mm-hmm. that's move-in ready, that's at the right rate, um, and there's not enough child care. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I would love to move to Ely, but where am I going to live and who's going to watch my children mm-hmm. um, for a certain number of hours a week? So right. people like Sunshine trying to solve that problem creatively are such mm-hmm. a gift. And so therefore organizations like yours who you know really show Sunshine that we support that effort with financial support is also a big mm-hmm. gift. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. Kiwanis is also a, an organization that's easy uh, to, to get involved with. It's not large. Mm-hmm. You walk in and everybody either knows you or wants to get to know you, you know, for the first time. And it's, uh, they just kind of, you know, welcome you in and let you help and participate at whatever level you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been the case for us. We really didn't get involved until, uh, what, 2014. Right. Yeah. Well, when we, we were reti- fully retired. Retired and started going then. But mm-hmm. uh, it's been a real joy to, mm-hmm. to be part of the group. You're going on 10 years. Yeah. It That's goes right. fast. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this blueberry pie situation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the, I mean, how do you all refer to it? Do you refer to it as your blueberry art festival fundraiser or 
blueberry pie bonanza. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably the Blueberry Festival fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And we also sell pies at the Harvest Moon, Mm -hmm. about a quarter of what we sell at the Blueberry Festival. (laughs) But uh, that is... That is our main fundraiser, the blueberry, in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, last year, I believe we sold a total of 600 pies. 600 pies. Yes. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about how the pies are made. But when the pies were being made in the nursing home kitchen here, to make 600 pies, you have to order 1,000 pounds of wild Maine blueberries. Wow. And last year they weren't able to get a thousand pounds. So uh, I think they got 700 pounds of wild Maine blueberries and then they got 300 pounds of dom- the other kind of blueberries, domestic blueberries that were grown in Canada. Mm-hmm. But um, that's about how many blueberries you need to make 600 pie. <laughs> That is a piece of trivia I never thought that I would need to know. I just think it's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. The blueberries, of course, are very special to the region and for a lot of reasons. But our next guest is actually going to be talking about um, blueberries in the context of Ojibwe culture and heritage. Yes. but the wild blueberries here in Ely are important, are an important source of sustenance. And they're also just insanely delicious. Oh, they are. And so the Blueberry Festival is so beautifully timed because it really does often align with the ripening of the wild blueberries around here. And so people who come to the festival are hankering for a blueberry treat. Mm-hmm. And y'all really deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It People... At least, you know, every year, at least two or three people say, did you all pick the blueberries for these pies? And I go, <laughs> no. And then I explain how many po- how many pounds of blueberries are needed to make 600 pies. And they go, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, <laughs> it's like, have you ever been blueberry picking? How long did it take you to get a gallon? Let's, let's, let's talk yeah. about mm-hmm. that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, uh, you know, that was for me, I I loved being at the festival. I love talking to the people that come. I love it when people say, you know, I I come from Alaska every year to have a piece of blueberry. <laughs> and one guy even said, you know, I came from Belgium for this. And I went, really? And he goes, well, yeah, I live in Belgium and I'm visiting my mom. And I always, <laughs> I always try to come when it's the festival. But, um, you know, that's fun. But I just had so much fun helping to make those pies. Mm. That was just so much fun. How long, like when did you start? Uh, Let's see. We worked for about four hours on, four to five hours on Wednesday before the festival. And then we worked about that same amount of time on Thursday And then, uh, you know, we made these in the nursing home kitchen Mm -hmm. with the help of two wonderful women who were doing this for years. But then uh, one of them retired and just said, you know, I just can't do this anymore. And the other one cannot do it by herself. And nobody else in the nursing home kitchen crew stepped up and said, sure, I'll help. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we have to do a little different direction this year. But... And then, uh, you know, they bake them. They have these rotating convection ovens and they, 
And these women gave so much of their time to help us. I mean, this was their own personal time. Right. They were not on the clock, so to speak. But, uh, and then they would make the rest of the pies themselves on Friday and Saturday. Oh my gosh. It was unbelievable. There must have been like a commercial kitchen, like, yeah, I just can't fathom 600 pies. I mean, I feel like it takes me hours to make one pie. Right. I am so putsy in the kitchen. My childhood nickname was Pokey, short for slow poke. (laughs) Just like, do, 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 do. 600 pies in just three days? Yes. Um, You know, just had a whole system. And of course, you know, they have to be made in a commercial kitchen if you are selling them. That's why they had to be made at the nursing home. Right. And once that went away, it's, okay, we can't do this anymore. Now what are we going to do? And so would you like to tell them what we're doing now? Well, we worked, worked with SUPS to figure out how to uh, make this happen. They mm-hmm. have kind of a handle on food in the, in the <laughs> they community. They sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Paul, a member of our group, uh, did some investigating. He found out that uh, people in Babbitt at that uh, grocery store have the equipment to do the, the baking of pies. So we checked with them to see if that could be done. Mm-hmm. And it could be, but it's such a distance when you're uh, schlepping pies to, you know, a few, couple dozen at a time right. to Whiteside Park. Uh, that's not going to work. It's and a logistic, it was logistically a, not viable. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, but I guess after some investigation, uh, yeah, we weren't here for that conversation, but they found a pie uh, uh, distributor that really makes a good mm. blueberry pie. So it's going to be baked here, mm-hmm. you know, but it will, uh, you know, it, it will be a different process. Mm-hmm. They are adding something to it. I guess they've done some sampling, uh, Kiwanis Club. Yeah, what a fun meeting to be at. Yeah, like, hey, everyone, today <laughs> we're eating pie and we're just doing <laughs> yeah. taste testing. Exactly. But they're going to kind of tweak it a little bit to make it, uh, they feel, as as close to what it, the original has been. Yeah. Well, how great to take, you know, what what an amazing heritage that you had, you know, those two women volunteering their time yeah. to support the production of 600 pies. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, if you can go back to that model sometime, if the right people come along, that would be yeah. phenomenal. But how wonderful that the solution included partnering with a local business mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and using their network and their partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, how wonderful that there are going to be people eating blueberry pie in Whiteside Park during the Blueberry Art Festival. That's right. And you better believe I'll be one of them. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, we can no longer say, yes, I helped make this pie, but, uh, you know, still we'll have to do some work to get them to, I guess you would say, the standard that we want them to be mm-hmm. for sale. Mm-hmm. But we're really the only vendor that sells pie sells blueberry stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody has blueberry scented candles. I know she brought those in, but nobody else has that. And one thing that I did to generate sales several years in a row is I walked around eating a piece of blueberry pie and people would say, <laughs> where'd you get that? And they'd go over there in the pavilion and stuff. And I generated a lot of business. And this one gentleman who is one of the vendors that I've gotten to know I kept saying, come and have some blueberry pie. And he'd go, you know, I don't know if I'd have time. And I said, you really love it. So he 
he had it. Mm-hmm. And then the next year I said, are you going to come have pie again? And he said, well, I just came to get pie because you were so enthusiastic, but I don't <laughs> like blueberry pie. <laughs> Well, more for me, sir. <laughs> That's right. And I said, well, thanks for trying. But there's another vendor that they came uh, th- every day. This guy came twice a day to get pie for three days. Love it. Well, I mean, gosh, I as someone who lives in town, I've, I eat as many meals at the festival as possible during that short period of time because it's there's unique foods that aren't available, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm other times of the year here in town. Mm. Um, it might be worth it, I guess, for our listeners just to, you know, say, you know, Blueberry Art Festival is a, a festival put on by the Ely Chamber of Commerce. Um, and this year it'll take place July 28th through the 30th. It's over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And there are vendors selling, you know, handmade goods or distributing products. And there's also an experience Ely Expo where nonprofit organizations and other entities can kind of um, table as well. So the Blueberry Art Festival is an activity that takes place in Whiteside Park in town. It is a very beloved annual festival. It is. So just to make sure people, if, if people aren't familiar with that, um, give that little bit of background. And of course, one of the staple things to do at the Blueberry Art Festival is get a slice of pie. Of course. And Kiwanis has been doing this since 1993. 1990s. Their 30th year. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun to be able to mm-hmm. celebrate and tell, um, tell your patrons about. Mm-hmm. What I have found is that in addition to, uh, you know, people coming for a piece of pie, we always, I'm the one with another person that, you know, I'm the money woman. I take the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, we always put a tip jar there. Mm-hmm. And people say, you know, who is this money for? And we said it's for the kids in the community. You wouldn't believe people will buy a piece of pie and they'll give me a 20 and they'll say, keep the change. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, it's for a gen, you know, it's for a good cause for mm-hmm. the t- for the kids. Mm-hmm. How much does a slice of pie cost? Well, uh, pie was. We won't hold you to it. <laughs> you know, last year pie a la mode was four fifty, so it was probably four for the pie four fifty. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's going to change. Mm-hmm. They can buy whole pies too. And you can buy a whole 28? pie. Well, last year it was 32. 32. Because people were saying, you're not charging enough for this. Okay, we'll charge more. Yeah, you talked me into it. I mean, it is a fundraiser, right? It is a fundraiser. um, Yeah. And we give, I believe, what's the figure about how much we give to the kids in the community every year? 15. Yeah, $15,000 a year. Wow. Mm -hmm. And this is your primary fundraiser. Yes. Yeah. Harvest Moon, you know, we sell a little. Yep. This is our primary fundraiser. Right. Well, and yeah, imagine I'm someone in the festival. I've got cash in my wallet because I came here to check out what was for sale. I know I'm going to, you know, I'm hungry because I I knew there was going to be food. It's blueberry season. Mm-hmm. It's blueberry festival. And you tell me that the proceeds for the slice of pie I'm going to eat help fund programs for youth in the community I live in or a community I'm spending time in. Like, no brainer. Here Mm -hmm. you go. Thank you for the ice cream and the pie. 
Mm-hmm. What monsters don't get ice cream with their pie? No really? Kidding. <laughs> and just the, kidding, folks. Just kidding. The, the the new thing we're doing this year is that for the last two years we've sold, sold Dorothy Malter root beer also. Wow. And we decided we're going to sell root beer floats this year. Oh, why well, not? You have the infrastructure in place. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> how fun! How many people do you think go through? I mean, how many? So 600 pies, but some of them are sold as slices. Some of them are sold whole. So that's kind of tough to say. Is the pie cut into eight slices? Yes. Or, yeah. So if you have, we're not going to have as many pies as we did in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, like last Ooh. year, you know, 600, that was a lot. So we're creating a supply and demand situation, oh, folks. Yes. You better get there fast, mm-hmm. get, get there, there early. early. Mm-hmm. And I tell everybody, you want pie, especially, uh, I'm not sure how many whole pies we're going to sell, but you want pie at all. You better come Friday and Saturday because Sunday we have run out by noon. Mm-hmm. Pie for breakfast. <laughs> when we've run out of pies and people come and they're so disappointed, they've just been waiting for this. And, and yet I guess somehow they have some of the ingredients left over at mm-hmm. you know, nursing home. They'll, <laughs> they'll send that over to us and we'll just put some ice cream in addition dump some of the, the the blueberries on top of that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's not pie, but it tastes like it. Well, that's what I always say. I teach pie classes at the Ely Folk School, and it's like, just make sure your filling tastes great mm-hmm. because if you're, like, if the worst should happen and your mm-hmm. crust is underbaked or something goes terribly wrong or gets burnt, like, just dump the outside, dump the insides onto a bowl of ice cream and you have yourself a Perfect. nice, tasty compote. Yes. You know, I have to confess that until I tasted the pie that Kiwanis was making, mm-hmm. I did not like blueberry pie. Blasphemy. I know. But I tasted this and I thought, where have you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really did not like blueberry pie. Mm-hmm. But I love it now. And now you are a convert. I am. I am a connoisseur. So if anybody else says I have blueberry pie, no, that's okay. Some people can't get enough blueberries, so they they get. We also sell blueberry ice cream, along with vanilla. But many people just say, "Pile it on," you know. We mm-hmm. like all the blueberries we can get. Yeah, tis <laughs> the season, mm-hmm. or will be. I'm really looking forward to it. I know it's kind of early in the year to be talking about. Often, for listeners who've been following along, often we share something on an episode that's kind of coming up next week. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about the blueberry festival now because it really is a regional attraction that brings a lot of people to town. And if you need lodging, I really encourage you to figure that out as soon as possible because, um, eventually there will be no vacancy in town. And so, um, we wanted to make sure to have an episode about the blueberry festival sooner than later Mm -hmm. because it is such a big deal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people camp. A lot of people just come up for for the day. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people from the cities mm-hmm. or from Duluth. When I used to work at Insula Restaurant, and that was always a fun time. It was very busy, and he'd be like, "Oh, where are you from?" And it'd be, it's, it is people from Grand Rapids and Hoyt Lakes and Grand Marais. You know, people from other parts of the Arrowhead coming into Ely just for the day to see it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell me then about some of those funds and where they're going. So you made a nice list. I don't know where your list is. Here you go. Well, the two biggest uh, 
benefactors are uh, the scholarships. Yeah, we have, uh, what, two scholarships to the uh, Ely High School graduates? Yeah, we give two to the Ely High School grads, and I don't know how many we give for now called uh, Minnesota North Minnesota North Vermilion, College. Vermilion Campus. Mm-hmm. $3,000 for uh, Ely, the two students from Ely who are graduating, and then uh, 1500 to uh, Minnesota North Vermilion Campus. Mm-hmm. So those are pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the, the uh, youth are interviewed. They, mm-hmm. You know, they have to apply and then go through an interview process. So it's uh, it's a good resource for them. But there, I counted 25 other, you know, benefactors <laughs> uh, that to include um, the physics class trip, uh, St. Louis County Youth Action Conference, uh, Ely Community Resource, the ECR program, senior class trip, uh, all, the all-night grad party, the National Honor Society scholarship, middle school trips, uh, that are taken uh, to Wolf Ridge's Ely Food Shelf, the Winter Festival, Snow Sculpture, Ely Youth Ski Team, um, the Ely High School Nordic Ski Team, Northern Lakes Canoe Base, uh, Ely Blumenson Resource, I'm sorry, Ely Community Resource, mm. uh, Northwoods Partners, uh, Ely Community Health Center, Northwoods Partners General Donation, Separate from the other, Cops and Kids, Northern Lights Clubhouse, Ely Fireworks, and I don't know, it goes on and yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of it, early childhood yeah. education programs, yeah. all the ones in the area, Yep, we contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Um, Head Start. Yep, Head Start in Babbitt and Ely, uh, Northeast Range, Early Childhood Development in Babbitt, Tower Sudan Early Childhood Education, Early Childhood Family Education, Happy Days Nursery Scholarships. Wow. Um, we give a lot of money. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's endless. And uh, it's kind of like, oh, and we, we help the fall musical that the kids do. Yeah. You know, which is a lot of fun. Um, well, and you, you don't have to keep going down yeah. the list necessarily, but I think it's... You know, worth noting, you've got several pages worth of, yes. you know, documents yeah, to show pages. where all of the, the funds are going to. So you have sort of this um, power as an organization to have these like few key fundraisers throughout the year and then make it a little bit easier on the entities who are, you know, boots on the ground doing the work mm-hmm. so that they're not always doing the work plus asking the mm-hmm. community for funds. Mm-hmm. There's sort of this one place where you know you can go and um, and streamline the process a little bit. Right. And as uh, we just, as I said before, we encourage organizations in the community that have not applied for a scholarship and that work with children to apply for those scholarships. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is the, the power of Kiwanis mm-hmm. that their entire focus wherever they are in the world is on helping children. Mm -hmm. That's it. And the children, you know, people say, you know, children are our future. No, children are here today. And of course they're in the future, but they're here now and we need to help them here now so that as they grow to be adults, they're going to be able to be involved in their communities wherever Mm -hmm. they find themselves and help that community. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's what it's all about to me. That's what life is about. You help each other. Mm-hmm. Here, here. We can cheers to that with a slice of pie. <laughs> That's right. Before too long. <laughs> well, okay. So in summary, folks, come to Ely for fourth or for excuse me, the Blueberry Art Festival weekend, July 28th through the 30th. Make sure to check out the Kiwanis Club pie sale under the pavilion. Mm-hmm. Get there early. Be there Friday and Saturday because once the pies run out, they've run out. Mm-hmm. Donate extra because it's all for a good cause. Spring for the a la mode, my goodness. <laughs> um, and if anyone is interested, a local person hearing this episode and they want to help out, who can they contact? How could they learn more about, you know, volunteering to support the pie sales or just learning more about Kiwanis Club? Or, yeah. Uh, I would just say that we can give the, uh, them our email address. Okay. Which is easy. It's Ely Smiths with an S, mm-hmm. Ely Smiths at gmail.com. Let us know your questions. How can we help you? Mm-hmm. You can get it that way. And they Perfect. can also say, you know, I'd like to help with the festival. And we'll just say, okay, a couple hours, just give us when you'd like to help and we'll slot you in. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. And how fun, right? Y'all talking about how it was Mm to, you know, dole out those slices and talk with the people coming through the line. It sounds delightful. Mm -hmm. It is. To make, you know, hundreds of people's day. Mm -hmm. What a cool way to volunteer. Yep. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sue and Larry Smith. Thank you for hosting. Thank you for hosting and for getting our organization out there. We're a lot of fun. Come join us. Beautiful. Thank you. Ryan Bajan, Minisigabo, is the Ojibwe language and cultural teacher at Net Lake School located on the Net Lake Reservation. His passion is working with youth and families and helping reconnect people to the land. This work takes place in school and throughout the regional communities as Ryan leads culture camps, school culture change programs, and serves as the director for Wawate Programs, a local nonprofit that directly serves tribal nations in food sovereignty and cultural revitalization efforts through community programming. Ryan and his wife, Linda, are the parents to six children, five of whom they fostered and adopted. His passion is being in the woods, canoeing, camping, singing, and spending time with his family in those places. Hello, Ryan. It's so nice to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So you're here to discuss blueberries, but before you do, I'm wondering if you'll start by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Buju, Rhine Indigenous Cause, Minisagabo, Nindagujabwemong, Makwa Nindundame, Robinson's Gaginning Nindunjaba. Hello, everyone. Yep, my name is Ryan. In um, the language I'm called uh, a couple names, but Minisagabo uh, is one of them. And I I live in Ely, in the Ely area, uh, with my family on uh, one of our wonderful lakes. Beautiful. How did you come to identify Ely as a, as a place to be? How did you get exposed to Ely for the first time? Hmm. 
I came on a trip in the Boundary Waters, a two-week trail crew trip um, through an alliance program with the Forest Service and the Boy Scouts uh, up on Moose Lake Road. And uh, after those two weeks in the Boundary Waters, I was totally uh, sold out hard. (laughs) Um, Every every moment after that, I just wanted to be up here and – we finally made it our permanent home in 2012 after spending a few summers up uh, and yeah, have, uh, you know, made a lot of use of the uh, wilderness and I've been able to share that love with my, uh, my own children. Um, I, I am a, a parent of six. I have, um, all of our, our five ad, ad, adopted children are all from <clears throat> uh, native communities mm-hmm. um, and local, you know, Boys Fort, White Earth. And so we're pretty plugged into those communities uh, through um, different programming, uh, just a lot of families and friends that we've uh, been able to connect with over the years here. How did you come to be an Ojibwe language and culture teacher? I was just projected on a path uh, and uh, just an overwhelming desire to uh, to learn that language, seeking out elders who were first language speakers, pouring over resources um, that were out there at the time, and uh, to develop fluency in the language and in the uh, seasonal harvest activities um, that were traditional to the Anishinaabeg of this region. So working through those things with several families and participating as much as I could uh, as an outsider, and to the point that um, while I was already teaching uh, with a with a degree in licensure and special education, I was also leading powwow clubs um, on the reservation where we took students to powwows across the country. I went to Denver March powwow a couple of times. Um, we were having fundraisers and uh, other cultural of, um, camp activities where we had sugar bush and wild rice camp and. Uh, lots of other, um, lots of other related camps, and then we uh, we got into I, we had students get into uh, traditional structures, and we built a longhouse and uh, in tower, and we were able to have students uh, schooled in the longhouse multiple days a week uh, through the winter. It was wild, uh, and that place is still standing and is in great shape. We use it, still use it all the time now with Wawate programs. Uh, then I went out west to teach um, at the Circle Life Academy Tribal School on the Waters Reservation for a couple of years uh, where I served as an Ojibwe language and cultural specialist. Uh, essentially, my task there was to lead the seasonal harvest activities. We had restructured the school calendar to reflect the seasons. Uh-huh. Um, so we had a culture camp, a week long culture camp, every single major harvest. And 
which, you know, a day here, a day there, you, we don't learn the way these teachings really happened. They happened in a Gabeshu in a camp. And the camp was like this holistic thing where lots of folks had different tasks and the youth would be involved in different things. And they, so they, they'd see it all happening. Um, they'd get plugged in. Either their family were responsible for something specific or, you know, the, the youth did certain tasks depending on the, the activity. And, and it was multiple days. So you, you learned perseverance and how to deal with weather and, um, just the, at some point it becomes somewhat arduous having to process food mm -hmm. and you can't learn that in just a, you know, couple hours. You have to learn that over the course of at least a week. And so we, we did that and it was amazing and successful and community was heavily involved. The students loved it. Um, and then I had to come back. I came back home here to Ely and, uh, we were still in the process of adopting our twins um, from Boys Fort. And so I had to return home and um, continued the work locally here uh, at Northwood School, teaching Ojibwe culture as an elective and getting plugged back into the, the older students on Vermilion and Net Lake. And then, um, yeah, I took a job at Net Lake School after the retirement of their previous culture Ojibwe language teacher, and um, it's been awesome. This is my second year there, wrapping up my second year there. Uh, I was um, uh, fortunate in that the tribe was able to endorse me as a as a language as a speaker and um, help me get an American Indian language and culture um, licensure. Uh, so it's been a it's been great. I work with grades K through six primarily, um, but I also work within the community. I really culture classes all over the place. And, um, you know, and this work has led to the development of our nonprofit Wawate programs, which is in its first year of formalization. And um, we have a, a, an indigenous major, majority board uh, and our, our programming is the same thing, you know, leading, uh, cultural land-based teachings for, with families. And, uh, the goal is that it becomes, um, a pretty strong program, um, program nonprofit over the course of, you know, a year doing these camps on an extended, um, basis. So. Mm -hmm. And when you say the major harvests, you were talking about having week long camps for each of the major harvests. What are the major harvests? So, uh, you know, traditionally the year is organized by lunar months. And so we have 13 moons and the harvests would take place based on the moon cycle. Um, we have four major seasons and within those seasons, certain, um, things happen. So like right now we're in Nibin summer. And so summer would be kicked off right when the melt, the thaw happens, uh, with netting fish, which when they're in the shallows of the lake feeding, uh, we net them 
for as long as they're going to be in the shallows. Uh, so about a month, you know, you can do well netting fish. And that's an activity that's uh, um, captured within the 1854 treaty for use on Lake Vermilion. And then after netting, um, and these are all, you know, these are all traditional harvests too. So, uh, you know, camping on a lake and then as the summer goes on, you're moving around a little bit to harvest berries. Um, berry season is about a month long activity and all the berries traditionally were prepared um, for future use. So they were dried, uh, sun dried. Um, and there's a lot of different berries and yeah, maybe we'll talk about that more here in a little bit, but, uh, after berry camp, uh, we'd move into our Manuman Gabeshawin, our wild rice harvest, where we would set up on our rice lakes and, uh, there are rice lakes all over the place. They're not anymore. There's a lot less rice now than there was, but there were, there was wild rice lakes everywhere. Mm. We planted it. We had, um, you know, Anishinaabe here in this area, there were rice chiefs who governed where families and clans set up um, because there were so many people, you know, uh, wild rice being the primary food harvest of the year. It was the, the crop that you needed to stock up on. Um, given it was a complete protein, it was the food that would get you through winter um, if you didn't have anything else. And then after rice camp was done, we'd move into uh, our hunt, various hunting camps and um, harvesting moose and the time caribou and then deer later on. And um, all that meat would be preserved to go into winter. And winter camp was a hunkered down activity. We didn't really do any a whole lot of harvesting. We didn't really leave our camps much. Um, there was some netting through the ice and, uh, as soon as the ice started to move, you know, spearing for suckers and, and then, uh, getting into our Iskegamizage, uh, Gizes, that, that, uh, sat boiling moon mm -hmm. where we were in camp to harvest maple, sugar maple sap, um, in this region and, that was a major camp because, you know, maple sugar was a primary uh, food. Um, the sap was a food the, the, in all stages, and then preserved was the sugar. Mm -hmm. um, so, I loved the class you taught for the Ely Folk School about the sap boiling process, and it was a real revelation to me um, that you could just drink the sap, and it was just... So darn tasty <laughs> and special, right? Yeah, and what you know, what it was a—it's always been a, a treat, but it was also medicine, and I think that's something that um, we've we certainly have lost a lot. That especially as things became a part of economy when the fur trade was going on, wild rice became an economic thing, uh, meat became an economic thing, and uh, berries, everything, maple sugar. But originally it was it was medicine. It was the sustenance of it is sustained because of the you know 
health, the health properties of those things. And so they're all superfoods in themselves. And uh, Dhanishnabe were incredibly healthy people mm -hmm. because of the foods that they ate. Uh, and and the, the trees providing the sap, you know, there's lots of other trees that provided sap and there's lots of other plants that uh, provided medicines too. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we teach um, has to do with the preservation of, of wild medicines and um, how to use medicines to to heal, heal your body uh, holistically and uh, from, you know, from the standpoint of just gathering and making teas to, to the point of drying and creating tinctures. And those are some of the classes that we are, we teach currently with our nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And every season has, you know, there's different medicines that are gathered in those seasons. And so, um, the harvest, the whole camp setting of the harvest was more than just the item that was being harvested. It had to do with a lot of other things too. The gathering of, of medicines, the gathering of, um, yeah, a whole variety of food. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about blueberries, if you would. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, mean, Mean, mean is blueberry, mean none, blueberries. Mean uh, none. Mean none. Mean none. Mean none is the biggest harvest of berries during our berry um, camps. And because it's the most productive berry, and we actually cultivated it, wild blueberries, right? Mm -hmm. Wild blueberries, we cultivated them through burn practices. We had uh, what people have called cold burning or cold fire or cultural burning. Um, we use Godet fire to, to bring about the health of land. And so we had fire keepers who would traditionally burn in the spring all sorts of land. I mean, the boundary was the boundary waters now would have been burned regularly. The fuel would have been burned before it became a, a major forest fire hazard, and and areas would be opened up not just to create space that blueberries would grow and they love, you know, burned areas, but also to create easier places to hunt. Um, so. You know, blueberries will grow in a dense forest too, um, even though they, they love sun. Um, but it's easier to harvest them when there's nothing else around. So, you know, burning all that fuel up helps those crops. And so that's what happened. Uh, we would create blueberry uh, farms, mm -hmm. <laughs> blueberry farms all over the place, and they would change. And, um, you know, it wasn't just like a patch here, a patch there. It was like going out and gathering with, a, with you know, in clan family, going out and gathering lots, lots and lots and lots of blueberries. And there are other berries, too, that pop up in the blueberry harvest, like Miss Goman, our raspberries, wild raspberries grow 
um, June berries and choke cherries, depending on the season, pop out in that time period. Um, there's wintergreen that grows at the bottom of a forest floor around blueberries. Dewberries grow um, in that around blueberries. And then um, O'Day Menon, uh strawberries, mm. heartberry, O'Day, heartberry, Menon. Heartberry, um, the strawberries grow too um, on the fringes of blueberry uh, crops. So the heartberry, the blue, the strawberry is the first to, to populate um, in the summer. Mm-hmm. So there's a moon, typically a, a daemon, a gizus, that's devoted to the strawberry harvest. And those were considered like the pinnacle of berries. Just because of the flavor, I think, is just so, uh, if you can imagine, you know, not eating anything like it, and then all of a sudden you have your first strawberry of the year. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's wow. pretty special. Right. And so, and then, yep, the blueberries were harvested by the masses. They were dried. Uh, they were used in all, all foods as long as they would last. Mm-hmm. And now do you, through Wawate programs or any other um, entity, do a blueberry harvest camp? Yeah, I have a couple berry camps this summer. Um, one with my students from Net Lake. Uh, we have another berry camp with students in McGregor through a program we're running out there this summer. Uh, and then my own, my own children, my own family um, will go out and harvest wild blueberries um, by Jiman, by our canoe, and um, just because it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really collect the amount, um, <laughs> you know, that you would, that you could, because the kids eat every single one of them before they <laughs> make it into any sort of analogy or something. Uh, we also do a lot of farm berry picking, you know, because to be able to preserve a large amount of crop, um, I like mixing berries, so we'll pick wild pick, you know, June berries, choke cherries, pin cherries, uh, and then we'll mix them with the blueberries and, and, um, we'll mix them with other fruits, wild plums and crab apples and, uh, get this, yeah, mm-hmm. mixed jams. I had never heard of, I mean, I had never heard of June berries before moving to Ely. Delicious, plentiful. Um, But you mentioned dew berries and pin Mm -hmm. cherries. I'm not familiar with those two. Dew berry is, uh, you know, I think we probably still called it, Miss Goman, it looks like a raspberry. Hmm. The plant itself looks like a similar to a strawberry leaf. It's like a pointed three leaf, um, jagged edge. And it's a vine. It's a ground vine that grows through the forest and it grows all over the place, you know, um, wet, maybe slightly damp forest. It's an early berry. It pops out with the strawberries Hmm. and, uh, the vine grows and, you know, you're not going to collect a ton of them, but they're like a tart, Raspberry. There's other berries too. Thimbleberries. Uh, thimbleberries are 
one that's more of a west or northern. Um, if you ever take a trip to Basswood through Prairie Portage on the Quetico side, the whole trail is littered with thimbleberries. Oh, and they look like buckets. a thimble. And uh, it's a big, giant leaf, huge leaf. It's like, you know, eight inches wide or something. They're, it's a cool plant. Yeah. They look like raspberry. They're amazing. Um, pin cherries grow in this, you know, on the, if you go to a burn area and you walk those trails or walk openly out there, you'll see pin cherries and choke cherries growing together. It's a red cherry tree, red cherry plant, um, berry cherry <laughs> with a pit, <laughs> and uh, it's fairly sour. Mm-hmm. It just about covers them. There's gooseberries, so we have gooseberries which are in the current, you know, current gooseberry family. Mm-hmm. Um, there's gooseberries out there. I've picked a good bit of them. You know, in north, you know, things like huckleberry and Saskatoon berries. Um, there's different names for these berries that we have here and a different variety. If mm-hmm. you go, um, Northwest into, uh, Northern North Dakota, Montana, mm-hmm. Canada, and they're all very similar plants. You talked about, you know, the primary harvests and you mentioned the phrase superfood. So the traditional diet of the Anishinaabe people, you know, includes wild rice, which is, you know, part of the sacred narrative of the Anishinaabe people moving west. Um, Are there any kind of cultural things to share about blueberries in that same vein? Well, there's a, there is a, there's a berry fast and um this is um as as far as like gender roles which are something that you know s- that traditionally existed pretty strongly in the Anishinaabe culture uh and m- maybe have dwindled a good bit but very fast was a was the was the womanhood ceremony Mm. And so uh, young women would, would go through this very fast um, ceremony and it was a rite of passage. Um, and some people still do it today mm-hmm. uh, across Minnesota and Canada and uh, traditional communities. Um, so that, that would happen in the summer, uh, you know, but berry picking was just a, a I think, you know, traditionally a a family-based activity that everyone could participate in. And it was the it was the direct result of this cultural burning practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that was so they would have berries. I mean, they burn an entire forest so they'd have berries. Mm-hmm. Um and to keep the forest healthy. Because if the animals weren't eating healthy, then they wouldn't be able to be harvested themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. We had um, U.S. Forest Service, Kwishwe District Ranger, Aaron Canyon here, um, 
talking about fire. So anyone who is interested to learn more about fire management can certainly listen to that episode. And in that episode, I referred to a few Tuesday group programs where we learned about, um, you know, Lane Johnson out of the Cloquet office of the U.S. Forest Service has done some research showing, you know, tree ring analysis showing over 500 years worth of consistent burn history across the forest. So words like wilderness and talking about this like, you know, pristine kind of implying that it's been, you know, unmanaged forest is directly (laughs) um, contradictory to the fact of how the Anishinaabe people lived in and managed the forest. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, there are villages all across the, 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 you know, from Grand Portage to Quetico Lake to Lac La Croix, there's villages everywhere, right? Tens of thousands of uh, people <laughs> living out there and uh, growing crops. You know, we were growing crops, growing crops all over the place, potatoes and squash and beans and, um, uh, traditional tobacco was being grown, you know, for at least 600 years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a, it was a homestead for people, uh, once the migration ended, uh, on the Southern part of Lake Superior, uh, people group, you know, people groups moved North and, uh, probably by canoe mm-hmm. to, to enter what is now the boundary, what is now the wilderness zone, you know, all the way into Quetico. Um, I don't even know the numbers, but it, there's there's so many, you know, so many burial grounds, so many uh, village sites. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very populated. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the landscape changed. So you know, it it was no longer what it what it was. Um, the removal of the of the large pines definitely altered the entire ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You remove an, you remove entire species of animals. The caribou, for one, mm-hmm. gone, right? Um, so, and the fur trade also had an impact on all that, and the production of food as well. Um, the Anishinaabe were the primary source of food production. I mean, they had an economy on food. They created dried meat. Um, what, you know, people call it pemmican or, but basically a bar, you know, a bar that was made up of dried um, moose or deer or caribou meat and then with rendered lard and they mixed it together and then they had berries. They mm-hmm. had berries. It would reduce the shelf life of it, but they added berries and it's like a granola bar made of meat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've I've had uh several versions of it and you have to have a a uh 
<laughs> it's not the most flavorful uh, oh, yes. dish. To you have consume. to have a tolerant palate. Yeah, there you go. That's the words. <laughs> yeah, and you know they would. You could put it into a soup, and you'd have dried meat plate, and that's kind of what the uh, my like my crow family would do. Um, they still serve it to now, you know, mm-hmm. today as traditional food. When you say my crow family, does that mean you're part of the crow clan? What uh, that mean? Sorry, I uh, I'm a I, I'm an adopted crow. Okay. Um, crow tribe in Montana. Oh, okay. Sorry, excuse crow me. Crow tribe in Montana. Yep. yep. So I'm adopted into a crow family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you, yeah, you talked about um, sun drying the berries, and I'm curious just how that was executed, and then I'm curious if you have any insight to, yeah, like recipes or applications of the berries. Yeah, so, you know, sun drying is um, multi, multiple days in direct sun. There's also, uh, you know, near heat source, so not getting the berry above 100 degrees. Um, and the same thing applies, same practices of, like, meat as well. So... Uh, yeah, they would be laid out in trays of birch bark and and dried, and then and those were then put up in in clay jars, put up in sacks, uh, put up in um, birch bark um, containers and uh, stored, and we had. You know, they use various methods of storage, but there were cool pits, so dugout pits in the ground where you're you know, you get eight feet down and you can create a cooler. Wow. And layer it with balsam boughs and hardwood ash and make it fairly uh clean to um store everything. Meat, fish, because you got you know, all that the fish part. Um, if you're keeping fish for any period of time, even if you smoke it dry, it still needs to be stored at a cooler temperature than 80 degrees. Right. So, you know, we had we had storage pits that were used. Um, that's something several elders have confirmed to me, and they even had them into the early 1900s on the reservation. And the berries were then just rehydrated in wild rice dishes. Mm-hmm. Um Primarily wild rice, you know, multiple things would end up in that dish, meat, rice, berries, maple sugar. And, um, you know, as far as today using berries, we're, we're able now to, you know, essentially cook them into jam. Mm-hmm. And that's probably my jams and syrups are like, my favorite way and i think like the best <laughs> modern uh technique of of storing um so canning canning them and then uh also freezing berries which um you know once you remove the stems uh a light wash you're you're able to just freeze them a lot of times, though, when after I pick, my stuff just ends up in a Ziploc and goes right in the freezer. Yeah. <laughs> Until <laughs> right. I'm ready there's to the, do jam. There's the ideal and then yeah. there's the reality. 
Yeah, yeah. And then I pull out wild berries for canning and I wait till it's cooler to do canning. And then uh, whatever these conglomerate of these bags of, you know, all sorts of different berries are in the bags. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, they end up in the mix. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's too early really to, you know, it's, we're a little ways off from berry season, but it is, um, the highlight of the summer. Yeah, absolutely. And there's still a good bit of burn areas, you know, to, to check out, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with the recent fires. I imagine by now Mm -hmm. uh, there's a hardy blueberry crop in some of that area. Right. Because it doesn't necessarily come up, you know, if you have a fire, it's not the next summer that the blueberries are there. There's a little bit of a a bounce back period. So a couple of years after this Greenwood fire. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been really fun to learn with you, from you, from you. Um, Do you have anything you want to say about Wawate programs and where people can get more information? Not yet. Uh, Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm, we, I think we'll be making ourselves known a little more once um, some more organization takes place and uh, hopefully some more some funding um, becomes a lot more prevalent mm-hmm. here in the next year. And there's a lot of exciting things happening with that. So, um, you know, it'll it'll look like it'll look like open classes. Mm-hmm. We're pretty pumped about it. Uh, a big uh, feature on gardening. So this summer we'll have, we will be having some classes uh, at our farm and tower on uh, gardening practices, uh, soils, planting a garden, garden, and then you know the harvest technique. Mm-hmm. So awesome. Uh, well, we we'll, will certainly be. Yeah staying tuned for more information and when you're ready let us know and we'd love to have you back to learn more about that absolutely yeah miigwech for having me yeah miigwech thank you Chris Ellerbrock is the owner of 1080 North, a website development and marketing solutions business based in Ely. For the past 20 years, he's been helping businesses tell their story through marketing. Chris grew up in a family resort business and remains a shameless promoter of the Ely area. If you follow the What's Up Ely Facebook page, you may already be familiar with his regular photography and video posts, which are a significant passion both professionally and as a hobby. Hello, Chris. It's so nice to have you here with us. Hey, Lacey, how are you doing today? I am doing well. I am just so pleased to be here with you chatting. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, So you're here to discuss blueberry picking and to some extent, you know, blueberry photography. But before you do, I'm wondering if you'd start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a native to Ely, Minnesota, born and raised here, grew up at a resort on Garden Lake and, um, uh, I've lived here almost my entire life, uh, with the exception of a few years outside of Ely at uh, um, Mankato. And um, uh, other than that, yeah, I've pretty much spent my entire life here. So I consider myself to be a native of Ely. Uh, so may disagree with that term, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, 
I, like I said, I grew up at a resort, so kind of a resort kid and kind of have hospitality in my DNA. So yeah, so that's kind of, Ely is just like, it's a, it's a, this is home. Yeah. yeah. How fascinating to grow up at a resort. I mean, what level of interaction did you have with the folks coming through? Oh, tons. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like you, you, uh, you just get to get to know everybody and they, people come back every year and you mm-hmm. just kind of look forward to seeing them every year. So yeah, you really get to make some like lifelong friends. In fact, now that my parents have sold the resort after running it for 43 years, they, they retired a couple of years ago and we still have contact with a lot of the people that came up here and, yeah. and uh, stayed at the resort every year. How special. Yeah, it is pretty special. I'm sure you yourself were part of the charm. If you were like a kid, you know, they're like, Oh, we love this place we go to every summer. We're oh, yeah. Part of the family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was funny. We, they, they became like family. So you would just end up hanging out with them and, and, um, it, it didn't feel like they were like your customer anymore. So mm-hmm. that was pretty special. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I kind of miss it a little bit, but, uh, you know, you move on and you do new things. And so, yeah, like kind of a, a bit of my backstory. So, I went to college in Bemidji State, met my wife. We lived away from Ely for a few years, and then we moved back and started raising kids here in 2006. So so uh, we've been here ever since, and it's just an awesome place to raise kids. And Yeah. And um, a lot of great friends. Brett here that's producing this podcast, he's gotten to be a good friend, and you've gotten to be a good friend. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just love it. Ugh. Um, so did you go, when you went to school, did you go to study photography? Um, it was, I, I took some classes in photography, but it was more of a hobby at that point. And I didn't really start getting into photography seriously until I kind of moved back to Ely and started, um, playing around with, um, photography again. I had taken some classes when I was at Bemidji state and Mm -hmm. enjoyed that, but never really like fully got into it. And then, um, yeah, just a few, like four or five years ago, I started doing it quite a bit more and then started doing it professionally. So now I do a lot of that for the tourism bureau um, and for uh, real estate companies, do a lot of real estate photography, wildlife photography, nature mm-hmm. photography, stuff like that. Yeah. And you did a video project for the Ely Folk School. That's how I met you yeah, for the that's first right. time. Yep. That was now a long time ago. A couple of years ago already. Right? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah it's been so. years. Yep. So <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Um, what a cool way to continue to be a uh, a promoter of the Ely community. Like you said in your bio, you help businesses share their story. Yep. Um, and Ely has so many stories yeah. to tell. Yeah. Oh man. There's so many interesting people here in Ely, mm-hmm. uh, for people that uh, have lived here for any extended period of time, you start to learn about who those characters are and you get to look, learn about who they are, where they came from. And, mm-hmm. um, there's just, it's such an eclectic group of people here in Ely. Mm-hmm. A lot of interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, growing up here too, there were always interesting people kind of coming and going. Mm-hmm. Um, there were we called them the Ely characters, mm-hmm. and you you knew who they were. You'd see them on the street, and you'd be like, "Oh, there that or is that person?" <laughs> um, and some of them are still here, of course. You know, you have somebody like Seraphine who he just drives up and down the street with his Jeep, and everybody knows who that guy is, and it's. It, uh, those kinds of people just make Ely that much more fun. Legendary. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no we've kidding. said it before. We'll say it again. We're going to keep referring to Seraphine. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, you can check out the My Ely Story 
episode featuring Seraphine, the, the guy, guy in the Jeep. Yep. yep. And it brings me so much joy just just the other day. It felt like, oh, we talk about, you know, oh, ice is out now at summertime. Fishing opener has happened now at summertime. You know, the mosquitoes came out now at summertime. And for me, I was driving down um, Miner's Drive and past Seraphine. He was in his Jeep. I was in my car, stuck my hand out the window to wave and he waved back. And I was like, now it's summertime. That's right. It's Seraphine is out in his Jeep. (laughs) We are waving to each other as we pass each other by. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. That's one of the signs of spring. Truly. (laughs) Truly. So in your photography, what do you think? Do you like um, nature photography or human subjects Mm. better? I... Boy, that's a tough question. I I love landscape photography, wildlife photography, but I would say that I like photographing people the most, but not in a studio, not in a like kind of formal setting. I like capturing people in moments where oftentimes they don't even know that I'm shooting a picture of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that candid moment is like, or or the surprise moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a picture Brett's probably remembers it, but I, I caught him and Amanda in the park one day, and I was like, "Hey guys!" And they turned and it was like, "Click, click, click, click," and then they were like, "Oh, they, he's taking a picture of me!" So like they started <laughs> kind of smile and kind of get into it, but yep. but that wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. And I think the response to that then is more natural, mm-hmm. and uh, the the way that the photo turns out then tends to be more. Um, more attractive, more beautiful, whatever you want to call it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Candid you captured photos. a real moment. Captured a real moment. That's one of my favorite pictures of the two of us. By so <laughs> Good. thank you for that. Yeah. Awesome. yeah I, can't, I want to see this picture. Yeah. Well, we'll look at it afterward. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so candid photography for sure is like, that's my favorite. Moments where people are experiencing something, uh, whether it's sports or if it's just hanging out at a wedding or an event or something like that. And again, getting pictures of people when they don't really even know that you're there, that those moments are are really cool mm-hmm. on, on film. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that I feel like is just a great segue into the WhatsApp Bailey Facebook group. You know, it was mentioned in your bio, but you really are a, a great active participant in the What's Up Ely Facebook group and you're just sharing high quality images like the day of community events. And that's really exciting. And for someone who's not always able to attend everything to feel like I was a part of the cross country meet or I got to see the track experience or the cross country ski, you know, races, the things that you're out in the community, um, capturing, and then you so quickly turn them around and share them so freely. It's a, it's a great gift to the community. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So yeah, it's interesting you say that because I actually got some really nice compliment from a track mom the other day and she was standing there cheering for her daughter at a track meet. And a big part of why I'm doing a lot of sports photography right now is that I have kids that are in sports. And so uh, I'm often at those meets. And so I started doing that. I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do this. and I'm going to post these and share all the high res photos with the families. And anyway, so what she was saying was like, she's like, oh, thank you. Because I don't feel like I have to have my phone out trying to photograph my kid, try to capture the moment with my smartphone. I can't get a good close-up shot of them anyway. Uh, And I feel like I'm staring at my screen instead of staring at my kid and cheering for them. Mm -hmm. So she was like, thank you for doing that because then I can just be in the moment. And I was like, yeah, that's cool because like 
I love it. I get into it. I have fun with it. And then the parents can just be present and watch their kids. So yeah, what a contribution. Yeah. yeah so that's fun. Yeah. And tell us more about your kids. Oh yeah. So I've got a 15 year old daughter just, just turned 15. So man, time is flying and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's getting real, uh, real just in the sense that it's like, um, realizing that I don't have that much more time yeah. with them, like living at home. So right. I have a son who is going to be 12 and then like a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Wow. They're not yeah. like little babies oh, anymore. Man. They're I like know. real humans. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going fast, but it's, it's so fun. This is like such a great time. They're, they're fairly self-sufficient now. And so it, being able to do things with them is getting closer to kind of like being more like have an adult relationship with your kids. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fun time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, that you experience Ely to be a really great place to raise kids. Yeah. Why do you say that? What makes it so? Well, I mean, I don't have a ton of like places to compare it to, but the places that I have compared it to, like where I've lived uh, outside of Ely, none of them have had the feel that this has as far as like safety goes. Mm. Um, some of that comes from just knowing like what Ely is and having lived here, being comfortable with this place. But there's also knowing what other places are like and not being comfortable, say, letting your kid just walk down the street and go to the park and play by themselves or with yep. their friends, especially when they're they're younger. Like that, um, that's something I wouldn't let them do in other places that I lived, other bigger cities and towns and stuff like that. So being able to just say, yeah, go ahead, go to the park. See you play, later. See you later. Have fun. I mean, and there's obviously some limits as far as their age goes. We kind of give them more freedom as they get older, but in general, I would never feel uncomfortable walking down a dark alley in Ely in the middle of the night. Right. Uh, for that matter, as an adult. So, um, yeah, great place to great to raise kids. And the community is so, so amazing here. We've got a great church family. We've got a great just general community. We homeschool our kids. Um, that has nothing to do with like the quality of the Ely school, just kind of a lifestyle choice, but we're super connected in other ways with the uh, school. And of course, kids are in sports and stuff, which is part of the school. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And you're part of a network of other people who homeschool, right? Yep. So there's a support system there. Totally. For yeah. Folks so there's who a big, big uh, homeschool support group and uh, our kids get together with their kids uh, at least once a week. And mm -hmm. we do a lot of other stuff too. And field trips and extracurricular stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's... And Spanish class with Daphne Caruso. Yeah, who you just interviewed not too long ago. Yeah, so, or Brett yeah. did, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right, Brett did, uh, which was a great interview. I really enjoyed listening to that and hearing her story. Again, like, man, that's, that's what I love about Ely. You could just like walk into a coffee shop here and sit down next to people you don't know and lean over and be like, hey, I'm Chris, what's going on? And like, start up a conversation and next thing you know, you've like made a new friend. So, yeah. or, or see old people that, you know, that you know forever and you just kind of pick up a conversation where you left off a week ago. Yeah. So, well, and speaking of, I mean, coffee shops, my goodness, there's all these rumors about town, about a new coffee shop coming onto the scene. I have not heard this rumor. You've not heard the rumors? No. Okay. The rumor is that the old mantle house has been purchased and will be turned into a coffee shop. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So that is squarely in the rumor category <laughs> at this time. 
but I'll do my best to uh, get the firm details on that and right. maybe bring the folks affiliated with that endeavor onto the up onto the podcast so we can hear from them. So that's but, what's up, Ely? Question mark. What's up, Ely? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doing my best not to turn this into just a straight up like gossip column, but at the same time, but you kind of would are. love it to be a gossip <laughs> column. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well. You can't live in a small town without there being some rumors and gossip going on and misinformation, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, for the record, Lucy Soderstrom, Ian Law, and I have decided um, that there should be a resurrection of the old Ely Miner, which was the the first ever official newspaper for the town of Ely. Mm. And we were going to say, mining for gossip. <laughs> a renewable resource. Oh, I like it. And have it be like a Bridgerton style um, mm. gossip pamphlet. But I've ruined it now because I've told people about it. Ah, you so you would it. know who's behind it. So anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, you said coffee shops and that's what yeah. happened in my brain. Um, yeah, that's maybe one of the things that's like cool and also not cool about living in a small town is <laughs> like if you want anything to be private or secret, like don't tell anybody. Right. Uh, cause next thing you know, the word is out. Yeah. I have experienced that a couple of times where <laughs> shared, shared some info to somebody who I thought would might be, might be a little confidential and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, next thing you know, somebody's asking you about it. So, yeah, you got to really be explicit. Like, uh, this is, this stays in this room. Yeah. But I think that also is because we're such a social town. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of a side story to that. So when we moved back to Ely, uh, my wife had no, she wasn't very familiar with Ely, um, but she was a good sport and had made the commitment to come up here with me and only had come here to visit family prior to that. And uh, when we first moved back, I would say, hey, honey, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'll be back in 10 minutes. And then I'd come home like an hour later and she would be like, where were you? And I said, oh, well, I went to the grocery store and then I saw so-and-so and then I saw so-and-so. And then I saw so and so. Yep. <laughs> Hour oh, later. I yeah. can't, you can't go any, like, yeah, it's like, anywhere. okay, I said I would be there at seven and I tried my darndest, but I got here at 7 30 because I stopped at the liquor store on the way and ran into yep. someone and started chatting. I stopped at, like, this morning, I stopped in at Northern Grounds to buy pastries before work and I'm just in four different conversations for a couple yeah. minutes each in a way that I love. Yep. But, so you have to carve out some time mm -hmm. if you're going to go out in the community yeah. and go buy things and shop and stuff. But that's also just what I love about it. I love going to the hardware store and seeing Misty and mm -hmm. talking to her for a while or um, going to the grocery store and bumping into people that, you know, just that sort of thing uh, has always been such a great part about Ely. Mm -hmm. Somebody that the older folks might remember was Henry. He had the the shoe leather repair. Ah, he sells the belts. So The cobbler. Uh, yes, the cobbler. So his wife still kind of keeps that store going but anybody that knows henry knew that he loved to talk and so i loved to go in there and visit with him but i always made sure that i had at least an hour <laughs> when i would go see henry <laughs> so that i could talk to him because he always had great stories and you left just like encouraged and just like laughing and loving it so yeah somebody that i miss having around for sure i don't for those who don't know henry he passed away a, a number of years ago in an accident but um, man, he, he was just one of those guys who I say always kind of really lived. Mm -hmm. he, he had quite the story. So yeah. yeah. Too bad we can't have him on the podcast. I know. Oh man. He would have been a great My Ely Story podcast. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. We, there's like, and yeah, 
we need like 400 more episodes of that show. Brad, just so you <laughs> yes. know. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about blueberries. Sure. What do you like about blueberry picking? Like what are, what is the blueberry season to you? So probably the thing that I love about blueberry picking the most is not the blueberries, which is surprising, what? but, uh, I like being just out and away from everybody because as much as I love the little town and all the people, it's nice to kind of decompress and just get out <clears throat> in the woods. And, uh, I do two things. One, I'm either just quiet while I'm picking and I do it by myself. Or if I'm with somebody, I'm doing it like where we're just, we're kind of on our own and we're not like real close to each other. We're just moving around through a big patch. And it just gives me the ton of this like thinking time. Mm. Um, or I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> so I bring my phone with and I put my earbuds in and I just put my head down and I got my bug nets on and I just, I'm just go to town and next thing you know, three, four hours have gone by and my back is killing me. Hopefully. Yeah. So the, the, that's the, like the two things that I do It's kind of like driving. Like I like to drive too. I like to go places when I'm on the road, I'm always listening to a podcast or I just have the car quiet and I'm doing thinking and processing and, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, figuring out stuff for my business or, or just thinking about family and life. So yeah, that's, that's what blueberry picking is for me. That's the, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You can kind of get into a flow state out there. Yeah. 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 It's, it's weird. It's in, in where I've been picking for the last number of years is like way out. So it takes a long time to get to. Mm -hmm. And so it's a real commitment. So when you're out there, you're just committed to being there for four or five hours at least. Right. Cause it took so much to get yeah, there. Right. Yep. And I try to then keep it to one or two visits a season and just go to town and pick as many blueberries as I possibly can. Yeah. Where is it weather dependent or are you a rain or shine kind of person? If it's raining, I tend to not want to do it. I try to watch the weather, but I always try to look for like overcast days. Mm. So you just don't get fried when you're sitting out there. Cause a lot of times you're in the sun or, you know, it's not mm -hmm. really like, there's not a lot of tree cover right. where you're picking. So yeah, trying to find like that cooler day maybe overcast breezy is always good oh yeah get those bugs get the horse flies oh, Lordy. Oh, the, the, or the deer flies they're the worst yeah so but as far as gear goes yeah just cover up um even if you're like hot and sweaty just like put something on that is like cool but long sleeve and uh like bug nets those are great the the full hat it's like the a whole hat, face actually. coverage situation. Yeah. So it goes over your head, but it has like a little wire rim around it. Mm -hmm. And some of them are just like a net that hangs in your face. But the the ones that hang out over, it keeps it away from your face. And uh, you can you can wear a hat underneath it if you want like a baseball cap. And those work really good. Yeah. We have like a very, I talk about and think about blueberry picking as this very romantically lovely, amazing warm summer day, like get out there, get lost in the blueberry patch and, and, and pick the blueberries. But really there are a lot of bugs to contend with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the elements yeah. are very real. It's not all romantic. No. And in fact, like I am very much a get after it blueberry picker. Mm -hmm. I like I'm, I'm going to pick mm -hmm. and I'm all serious about it. I'm not like uh just go out for like a half hour and pick blueberries kind of. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> like I want to come back and have something to show for it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've in the past when I've gone blueberry picking, I'm really just, I think over the course of two sessions, just wanted enough to be able to make at least like three pies or pie equivalent. Sure. 
But that's a lot of work, yeah. even for just three pies. Yeah. Or a batch of blueberry hand pies. Yeah, what do you need, like four cups for a pie? Six. Six. Yeah. Yeah. So you think about how many, how much time it takes to pick six yeah. cups of blueberries. But a wild blueberry pie is an entirely different product. Oh, no comparison. Than a grocery store blueberry pie. Yeah. Like, I 100% agree. It's just an, it's a different thing. Yep. Apples and oranges. Yep. Blueberries and lemons. You know, they're just different. Wild blueberries and regular blueberries. Yeah. Different. So I have a question for you. Are you a pick and no eat or a pick and eat person? Pick and eat. My <laughs> see, goodness. See, I'm not. I'm like, I often will go out and like not eat a single one. Like that's like, I'm like lasered in on it. Wow. I mean, good for you. I wouldn't, I do not eat a lot, but it's like, if you find a really juicy one, like a, Gotta eat me it. and when I go with Eric, it's always like, look at this one. Like we're yeah. kind of competing for who found the biggest blueberry. Yeah. Um, we went with his parents one year and we all picked for as long as we could. We came back and we had a little competition of who picked the most and then a competition mm. of who got the biggest blueberry. But I can't help myself. I eat some of <laughs> them. My the goodness. One, right? How do you not? Yeah. Well, my wife, Jill, she will eat or the kids will eat while they're out picking. But typically, yeah, I'm, I'm just like, like, it's like a mission. Get out there and get it. Yeah. Well, and so. it truly though, knowing like, okay, six cups of blueberries for one pie, yeah. like, you know, don't eat too many because these are precious. Yeah. And they're going to be really powerful inside of a slice of pie. Oh, yeah. I, we, we make pie sometimes, but honestly, what we do mostly with ours is we eat them like right there when they're fresh, like within like that first several days, mm -hmm. keep a bunch in the fridge and just like gorge. Pop a whole mouthful yep. in. And then we freeze the rest of them and then we use them for all kinds of stuff. Like, well, we will make pie later with the frozen ones or we'll make smoothies and different things or just, again, thaw them out and eat them. Mm -hmm. um, just they're so full of antioxidants and uh, vitamins and stuff like that, that it's probably one of the healthiest fruits you can eat. I think that and pomegranates is what I've read mm -hmm. as far mm -hmm. as like density of nutrients and stuff. So what do you does your family get into June berries at all? Mm, yeah, we have in the last couple of years just because they've been so good, mm -hmm. like really, really plentiful. Yeah. I live on West Shagawa and there's always that stretch where there's just like some, you know, flora of some kind and it includes the June berries and there will be yep. just trucks parked on the side of the road <laughs> with a ladder and the truck bed. Yeah. People just going nuts on the yep. June berries. They're not as good as a blueberry though. Absolutely not. Yeah. And they have like a pretty hearty... Um, seed in the middle yep which is like impossible to remove like you just must eat it yeah it's like a pomegranate i mean not literally yep. but the june berry looks similar to a blueberry different in color mm -hmm. but then imagine that pomegranate um seed inside of a pomegranate yeah and you know i don't know if it's just the june berries that i've been getting into in the last couple of years but they haven't been too seedy like they've oh, been really 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 good like almost to the blueberry consistency. Mm. So just the flavor isn't quite as um, robust or dense or whatever you want to say about it. But mm -hmm. it's just like when you pop a wild blueberry in your mouth, it just doesn't compare. Eat a really? uh, domestic blueberry and you're like, man, this is disappointing. Yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> it's like just flat, no flavor. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. part of why we pick them too. Right. They're, they're so good. Yeah. So we picked... Um, trying to think how many I picked last year. I think I picked about two gallons last year, which was a pretty small amount mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. I think 
we had a drought the year before. Was that two years ago, guys, that we yeah. had the super, super dry year? Yep. I didn't pick any. No, me I, either. I went out to my spot and that I've been picking in the last number of years and it was just like scorched earth. Mm -hmm. So the year before that, Jill and I together picked six gallons. Wow. Berries, which was a pretty good, that's a, that's a good year. Yeah. Yeah. I love the culture of like, it's worse than anglers, right? You do not talk about where your blueberry patch is. Nope. You don't even tell your mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I always joke, jokingly yeah. say. Like my mom actually knows where my blueberry patch yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> she's probably not going to go hike out there anymore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I always say if you find a good spot, mm -hmm. don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And that might sound selfish, but there's plenty out there. Mm -hmm. Just go find some. Um, but well, and yeah. the knowledge of how, like, okay, where do blueberries grow? Like you can, you can be hiking anytime there's not snow on the ground and you can see what a blue, where there's a blueberry patch. Mm -hmm. There's distinct signs of blueberry patches. So For you sure. can, if you're hiking in May, if you're hiking in October or any time in between, whether or not the blueberries are actually growing or ripe, you can make note of where those blueberry patches are. Yep. And you can identify where there was a burn in the last five years or 10 years. I don't know how long that remains a mm -hmm. fruitful thing for the blueberry harvest. But people have the tools that they need to identify where there might be a blueberry patch and proceed accordingly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, although sometimes you just get lucky and you find like a killer patch, like a patch I found, uh, I, I found cause I was out in the woods doing other things. I was hunting and happened to find it one fall. And I was like, wow, this is, I think this is going to be a good one. Yep. Came back and yeah, it, it's paid off, but blueberry patches don't seem to last forever. Right. That's cause the forest changes, trees grow in, uh, things are different over time. And then the habitat for it is just mm -hmm. starts to get stunted and mm -hmm. get overgrown with trees. And then it's, kind of run its course. So then mm -hmm. you got to go find the next patch. So yeah, I don't know. I, I probably, if depending on how the patch is set up, you're probably every five, 10 years, you probably got to start looking for a new one yep. depending on, depending on how big and fruitful it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've been learning a lot about the relationship between fire and blueberry harvest and oh, yeah. blueberry growth. And, you know, Ryan, who we just got done chatting with, you know, reiterated that message and, and the, the relationship between blueberries and fire is, is yep. just inextricable. Yeah. And there's other weird things. So this is something I didn't know about for most of my life up until a couple of years ago, a friend of mine was telling me about it. So do you guys know about what they call like a witch's broom? Mm -mm. Have you ever seen one like in a balsam tree, like a mm -hmm. balsam fir? So if you look in balsam fir trees, you might see them occasionally and they basically look like a big dead cluster of branches really thick and tight. They don't look like the rest of the tree. And, but they, if you look at it, it looks kind of like a end of a witch's broom. Mm -hmm. So witch's broom is like a fungal thing that the tree has. It's a disease and it cross spreads with blueberry patches. And so the blueberry bushes get the witch's broom too. And so you may get into a patch of blueberries where you'll see either the branches, if there's, if the fungus is just starting to take hold, mm -hmm. it's kind of like these weird miscolored branches that are kind of rubbery and spongy. And then over time they get all hard and crusty and dead looking too. Interesting. And so it starts to look like the balsam, which mm -hmm. is broom. And it's this fungus that spreads between them. And so then 
it it's like a vicious cycle. So then the blueberries spread it to the balsam and back and forth. Hmm. So I, the reason why I bring it up is like sometimes if people have their own private property mm -hmm. and they have like a blueberry patch on it, um, like good stewardship would be to like clear out if you start seeing it in the balsam trees, cut the balsam trees down, yep. thin those out. Most people do that anyway because yeah. balsams are kind of like the the scrub tree around here. Nobody wants them and they're right. kind of a nuisance. They're but. fire starters. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then, so then the blueberries, if they move in too from fire and stuff like that, they can also spread that fungus and stuff. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of info online if you ever want to learn more about Ooh, it. What a little but, place to take a deep dive into the internet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty nerdy <laughs> stuff, like way over my head. I'm not a biologist, but uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm always looking when I find a patch like that to see like, oh boy, if, if the fungus is growing in those trees that it probably won't take long for it to spread to the blueberry patch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Duly noted. We've got some blueberry paraphernalia here. Tell yeah. us about it. What's your setup? What's so, your kit? So this is a blueberry picker and you can get these in town. You can get them at Northern Expressions. I think that's the one place that I do know that carries them. They, this one, they were out of the big ones the year that I went to buy one. And so it, she had one of these little junior ones mm -hmm. and it actually works out good. I don't know that I would want a bigger one, Yeah, but They've had blueberry pickers forever and they use them a lot in like in commercial picking for mm -hmm. like more domestic blueberries, but you can use them on a regular old blueberry, wild blueberry bush too. Mm -hmm. And so I always picked by hand for years mm -hmm. and a couple of years ago I was like, yeah, I'm kind of, as I've gotten older, I'm more mission oriented to go out mm -hmm. and pick them. And I wanted to do something that was faster. And so I tried it out and it works pretty good. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just go back to old hand picking, but yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like I would my impulse is to think I would prefer picking by hand, but I don't know, maybe I've never been wise enough to find a really like abundant patch at the right time where there's yeah. so many that something yeah. like that could really well, help me out. And there's kind of two schools of thought with blueberry picking. There's the clean picker and then there's the messy picker. Yep. And I don't know what you are. I'm but, kind of a clean picker. Okay. So you would not like right. these. Because this gets leaves and sticks that break off and fall in the thing. And then you dump it out into the barrel and and it's all full of leaves and stuff. So if you're a clean picker, yeah, I probably wouldn't use one of these. So I used to be a clean picker too. But what I kind of decided was I would rather get my picking done as fast as I can out in the hot woods, you know, mm -hmm. down on the ground crawling around. Yeah, it's knees a thigh workout. Aching. Yeah, right. So do it as fast as possible, then go home and sit in the comfort of your home and sort the blueberries and the leaves and the twigs and stuff. Oh, but I hate that. That got the little that worms task and just insects crawling around nuts. and the, <laughs> I do like, it out in my But yard. like and I'm at I'm at home and I'm like just trying to get all the little stuff off the blueberries. So yeah. it's just blueberries on the tray that I'll freeze and it get a little bit like I care too much. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it is kind of, some people might be grossed out by it, but the, there's always little insects and stuff yeah. crawling around. In Just there. put them in your blender. Yeah. Yeah. A little protein <laughs> source there. <laughs> yeah. But um, that has allowed me to pick really fast. But like you said, if you're in a smaller patch or the bushes are more sparse or thin, mm -hmm. then that may not actually be all that great. Mm -hmm. But I've picked a lot in bushes where it's just like these big, big clusters and just man you scrape once or twice and they're they're all have fallen off into the blueberry picker so that's that works out really good mm -hmm. yeah 
Speaking of which, my other thing is not really a prop, but a gift. Hang on a second. I'm going to step away from the mic. We'll allow it. Right. We'll allow it. So <gasps> I, have, I have a package for both of you today. These are the last of the last of the blueberries in my store. You guys can't see me, but I'm cheesing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank you. Yeah, well, I figured I could spare them since uh, blueberry season is just around the corner. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah, That's amazing. There was, I, got, I had just a couple bags left, so you're getting a couple of those. So yeah. Well, I just started reading this past weekend was the citywide rummage sale, always the Saturday before Memorial Day weekend is my understanding. And I was... Um, doing some rummaging, right? And I went to a place and there was this book called The Gift. Mm. And I went to go buy it along with a few other items. And I'm embarrassed, but at the time I was like, how much is the book? Because there wasn't a price on it. And she said 50. And I just, without controlling myself at all, I go, $50? <laughs> and she laughed at me and she was like, "Um, it's 50 cents, but you can have the book. <laughs> and it was called The Gift. So that kind of made sense. Oh, nice. And I went home and I eagerly read the first chapter. And it's, um, I, I can't remember actually the author. I didn't think he was a, a sociologist or an anthropologist. I think he was an author by trade, but he's talking about different um, gift institutions mm. within various cultures and how, you know, the gift is meant to maintain its momentum and gifts are meant to be consumed. So you've given me these beautiful blueberries. Thank you. And I will consume them as the most, as the most important, yeah, you right. know, um, thing about the gift culture. But then I'm, you know, I will go give someone a gift, but it won't necessarily be the fact that I will give you a gift because that turns into barter. Sure. But then you can trust that like eventually down the line, a gift will be given yeah. to you and it will be part of this circle of gift giving. Well, the best gifts are like, are the ones that, yeah, that, that are just purely given out of the desire to give a gift, right. Mm -hmm. With no, no um, desire or motivation to get one in return. And, mm -hmm. and so I won't gift you by telling you where my blueberry patch is, <laughs> but I'm happy to give you some of the blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> well, and your presence here is a gift. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, we'll have to have you back sometime. But before you go, tell us a little bit quick about your relationships to the Tourism Bureau. Mm. So that's been a blast. Cindy Smyka, uh, formerly Cindy Beans, is somebody that I've known for a little while. And uh, so my, my involvement there has been kind of in a partnership with a good friend of mine, Mike Fitzgerald. And we started doing a few things on our own with the Tourism Bureau, but then we began to build a really great friendship together and we have very similar interests and work-related stuff. So we started doing a lot of uh, collaborative projects. And, and he manages Wolvenwood Studio, Correct. right? Yep. Mike Fitzgerald, Wolvenwood Studio. Shout out to Mike. You should talk to him sometime. He's a fun guy to talk to. But anyway... Um, we just started really just clicking and having fun doing just some side projects. We did a project a number of years ago for the 4th of July parade. We shot a video. I don't know if you've ever seen that video. If not, I'll show it to you. We wanted to like capture the essence of Ely and do a fun video project. So we were thinking like, okay, what could we shoot? And we both were just like 4th of July, like instantly, like we said it at the same time. So we planned and we did a 4th of July video that really just captures 
the what Fourth of July in Ely is, and it's really special. It's this get up in the morning, do a million things all day long with friends and family, the parade, the park, swimming, barbecuing, then fireworks, and then like fall into bed exhausted. <laughs> it's like this like whirlwind of a day. It's my favorite day of the year. And uh, we shot that and that was really well received. And that kind of, I think, was the catalyst to kind of as part of the of what led us to start talking with the Tourism Bureau as that formed. And we have been working over the last year or so primarily on a big asset gathering project. And what that is is, is uh, photo and videos that really show Ely in a cool way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brett. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Brett's looking up the video right now. <laughs> so what what we were experiencing with marketing and planning for promoting Ely was that we would say, oh, we'd have this great idea. Like we want to show uh, ATVs because they're becoming kind of a popular thing in Ely. It's a, even as a destination. But you need to do that at a certain time of the year. And so when we want to promote that, it might be the off season, right? And so it's not a great time to ride. And we don't have the ability to just go out then and shoot the content that we need. Mm-hmm. So the the plan with the Tourism Bureau was to work over the course of a year to gather all those assets. So we just have this big, giant library to start working with. And now we're kind of on the tail end of that. We have a few kind of follow-up, wrap-up shoots to do this summer to kind of complete that project. But in general, we have collected that vast amount of content both you and Brett have been involved in some of those shoots. Mm-hmm. Lacey's pretty famous. If you happen to have been to the theater this past winter and seen any of the bumper videos, there's a really great shot of her throwing the boiling water in the air and oh, the steam classic. and everything. Classic I mean, Ely sub-zero temperature activity. Yeah, what people might not realize was that it was about 40 below that morning and we were absolutely frozen and frosty by the time we got done. Lacey was an awesome, awesome sport. So yeah, we got that. Oh, that was such a fun project because we got to work with other people that we really loved and like got along with great and new people like yourself that we kind of got to know during that time period. And uh the, the the end product has just been fantastic. And now you're starting to see that show up in a lot of different media, marketing, social media, website, video stuff that we're working on now. Oh, it's so, stunning stuff. Yeah. Phenomenal. The way you captured the fall colors and the winding, you know, backcountry roads and the ATV excitement and action and the bicycling, you know, the mountain biking and just like yep. the way fishing. I mean, just as a, as a viewer of of those assets, you know, it's like, wow, you really did capture, you really did capture it. Yeah. And so some of that, a lot of that actually has not yet seen the light of day, but it's now starting to kind of slowly trickle out into the marketing efforts that the the team at the tourism bureau is working on. So mm-hmm. I'm super excited for everybody to see that stuff as it kind of comes out and even places like the Minneapolis airport has like big digital billboards and they've got stuff there that's like photos and stuff that are showing up now from that project so that's pretty cool i had a friend text me about a week ago with a he had he was at minneapolis airport and he's like got a picture of the digital billboard and he's like was that you and i'm like yeah we we did that that's like yeah it's kind of fun to see that stuff it really pumps you up yeah well and the minneapolis airport is one of the best airports in the country yeah so people who are there 
love being there and then they get to see your artwork yep. on display. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. But just also too, it, yeah, it's fun to see your work, but it's honestly the most fun part about it was just like getting out there and doing it with those people. Yeah. Getting out with Brett and doing a bike ride or getting out with you in the morning and doing that ultra, uh, ultra cold sunrise hike to, mm -hmm. to get those shots. So like I, I still have people that are like, Hey, if you ever need anybody to like, you know, be a model, I'm your guy. Cause they have fun too. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We did a, uh, like a sunset pontoon ride to kind of showcase like fall in Ely and go, going out for a sunset pontoon and like a chartreuse board and wine drinking and stuff like that. And we got back from that evening with the group that we had asked to help us with that. And they were joking and saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure that none of the photos and videos turned out. So we'll probably need to do this yeah. again tomorrow. We'll have to do a take <laughs> two. Yeah, take two. Well, yeah. And talk about what's up in Ely. Yeah. Like we can talk about scheduled events and formal programs infinitely. Yeah. But so much of what's up in Ely is stuff like that. Yep. Buying a couple cheeses, bringing a knife and some crackers and some cured meats and some olives and some yep. nuts out onto a boat and just hanging out on the water. Or even if you don't live out on the lake, man, the, the people that you get to know here in town, uh, they're, they're so great. We, as an example on our Avenue, we call it E street. And that's because our neighbors one block away are the Elmquists, we're the Ellerbrooks, the, another block the other direction is the Eberts. Uh, we all have kids the same age. And it's just like you walk over and bring over some chartreuse board stuff and mm -hmm. just like come over and hang out, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, what a cool community to be able to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's up. Yeah. Oh, that is what's up. Well, <laughs> I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Chris Ellerbrook. I am so happy to have uh, be on the podcast and uh, you guys are doing great work. Keep it up. Cheers. Cheers. All right. A quick community announcement before we wrap up for this episode. Um, everyone should note that there is a community garden that's going to be um, facilitated this summer by some local master gardeners um, outside of the VA clinic in town. And there's currently a fundraiser for this effort. Folks can donate $25 and get in exchange uh, a t-shirt. It's a really well-designed, beautifully designed t-shirt. Um, the design is donated by our local well-known uh, person, Sean Chosa. And so if you're interested in making a donation, uh, the $25 donation if you're local and will pick up your shirt, a $33 donation if you need the shirt mailed to you via U.S. Postal Service. Um, if you're interested in that, you can pay via PayPal um, and contact Sean with your information, including your t-shirt size and mailing address if you're asking it to be delivered um, via this email address, wickedsun at hotmail.com. That is W-I-C-K-E-D-S-O-N at hotmail.com. I have already placed an order for multiple t-shirts I encourage you to join me in doing so as well. All right, that's all for this episode, folks. Thank you so much to our guests, Sue and Larry Smith, Ryan Bajan, and Chris Ellerbrook. 
infinite gratitude to Brett Ross, the producer of this podcast, and to the Ely Tourism Bureau, its sponsor. Consider following our show to ensure that you're notified when the next available becomes, oh, excuse me, when the next episode becomes available. And if you enjoy our content, tell a friend. If you have a suggestion as to what we should cover in a future episode or who we should invite to join us, email us at tourism at ely.org and let us know. <laughs>